You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories podcast with me, Kim Bidelf. In this podcast, I explore with fellow archaeologists how authors have used the prehistoric past that we so love um, as the subject for their stories. Do the authors provide new insights into the evidence that we have found, or do they merely project the biases of our time back onto the Stone Age? In this episode, I'm going to be dissecting Stonehenge by Bernard Cornwell with Sue Greeny, who is an archaeologist with English Heritage. Hello, Sue. Hello. Hello. Can you um, explain to us why you're eminently qualified to explore this book with me t- today? Okay, well, um, I'm uh, um, employed by English Heritage, and my job title there is Senior Properties Historian, but basically I'm an archaeologist, and I was um, heavily involved um, between 2009 and 2013 with the new visitor centre at Stonehenge. So I wrote the exhibition there, and I therefore know quite a lot about both Stonehenge and its surrounding landscape. I'm also now a part-time PhD student um, at Cardiff University, and my PhD is on Neolithic ceremonial monument complexes. So I guess that qualifies me to um, dissect uh, Stonehenge by Bernard Hall. Yes, pretty pretty much. Um, I uh, uh, saw that you had quite an important visitor to Stonehenge quite recently. Yeah, so uh, last, well, I can't remember exactly how long ago it was now. A few months but, ago? Uh, yeah, a few months ago, we had um, Barack Obama came to visit, and um, myself and my colleague Heather gave him a tour of the stones, and um, also to the other um, delegates that come over from America. Um, and he was very, very, very impressed with it. I think he's been talking about it to his American colleagues ever since, because we keep getting random visits from other people from the White House and from the military. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Maybe they're trying to think, hmm, I wonder, can we make our own Stonehenge in America? <laughs> yeah, and he went, when he was in um, Africa recently, he, he saw Lucy, which obviously he's really interested in kind of past and archaeology and prehistory, so that's quite, that's quite cool, really. It is, that's really nice. I, I mean, I, I was joking about making a, a Stonehenge clone, but I don't know if you've come across Clonehenge yeah, uh, yes, on Tumblr. Yes, what a wonderful thing. I love... Yeah, the, there are many, many Clonehenges. Many, many, many. There's probably already a half a dozen at least in, in the US um, that we uh, that we could look up on Clonehenge. Um it is such a, such an amazing monument that, and it's it's so iconic. And if anyone knows anything about prehistory, they know Stonehenge, um, and yet we know so little about it. Really, in in reality, uh, one of the main things that must have been difficult for you when writing all about it is actually the lack of archaeological investigation that's happened over the you know the past century or so um when there is it's it seems to be you know very small scale and uh, it's amazing how you know that we there's so much speculation with uh, so little actually being done yeah, that's when the cat arrives on the desk hang on <laughs> <laughs> you should do that typical um sorry um yeah no it, i mean to a certain extent yes i agree with you there there is that kind of gulf between what actually happened in the past and what we can try and kind of glimpse through tiny little keyholes as archaeologists. Having said that, in the Stonehenge landscape over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been an awful lot of new research and new excavation. Mm, yeah. And so actually, we um, were writing the exhibition and producing the material at quite a good time because that um, was all sort of new knowledge. Um, so the excavations that Mike Parker Pearson led at Darrington Walls 
um, you know, really for the first time, we, we kind of know where the builders of Stonehenge might have lived, which is a massive leap forward in terms of our knowledge Absolutely. Um, compared to, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that with the exhibition particularly, we try to get something away from that kind of, oh, it's all mysterious and we don't really know what happened. Because actually we do know quite a lot about Stonehenge and the Stonehenge landscape. Obviously it's partial. Um, and I think that's where... Um, that's why fiction is quite interesting, really, because it tries to fill in those those gaps about exactly who and what their personalities were like and exactly how it happened. And those are the things we don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, before we uh, start talking about the actual contents of the book, we, it, I'll, I'll point out the fact that Bernard Cornwell published this in 1999. So um, it was well before all of those most recent um, investigations and excavations uh, that have brought up some of the most amazing um, evidence, and yet he does um, he does have Darrington walls to a certain extent in there. Uh, he's got the Conebury Henge. He's got he's got the the Mesolithic. Um, posts in the car park <laughs> that he, he mentions a little bit later on in the in the um, afterward. Um, so he definitely did quite a lot of research for this book, but obviously some of his ideas may well not be supported by the most recent evidence, and that's not really his fault. No, no, not at all. But actually, um, he has a settlement at Darrington Walls in his book, and it forms a major part of the action. And so, in a way, he was kind of predicting what was going to be found. We, we kind of knew that there was feasting there and an evidence of lots of people but we didn't actually have the the buildings and and so he he was actually fairly accurate and actually the amount of research he did must have been extensive because he's pretty good that the kind of issue of chronology is probably one that he doesn't Perhaps um, yes. not be bothered. I think himself about the chronology of when things happen. Absolutely, I wanted I wanted to start with the chronology um, yeah. going into the content because that's the major problem I have with it. But uh, I wondered if you could just give us a quick precy of the chronology of Stonehenge and its landscape as uh, we see it now at the moment. Right. So um, Stonehenge is in um, built in a location that's already important in in the early and probably in the Mesolithic um, periods as well. So um, we know that there's the Mesolithic site um, at um, the newly discovered one at Blickmead, which is in the River Avon, not far away. And we have the Mesolithic post holes in the car park, which you already mentioned. And then in the early Neolithic, you really get the kind of first, what I think of being as the first monument complex, when a number of long barrows, burial mounds are built, and um, two cursorous monuments, two enormous rectangular earthwork enclosures, and the uh, causeway enclosure at Robin Hood's Ball, um, a couple of miles away to the north. So there's quite a number of monuments in that landscape, and, and um, but, but the, the main action of, of the book is really in the late Neolithic. And... Um, um, there's a kind of explosion of activity around 2500 BC, which is when Darrington Walls is occupied. Um, it's when timber monuments like Woodhenge and the Southern Circle get constructed, monuments like Coneybury Henge, and of course the major kind of stone raising and building activities at Stonehenge, um, the results of which we can see today. So um, it, it's, it's that particular period, that's kind of 2500 BC, that um, Bernard kind of sets his scenes in. Having said that, we um, have in the Stonehenge landscape a large number of Bronze Age round barrows, and um, these are burial mounds which date to the period after Stonehenge is constructed, and probably from about uh, 2200 um, BC. And in his book, those burial mounds are being built and exist, already exist at the time that Stonehenge is constructed. So I think um, he sort of concertinaed the um, the chronology down a bit and kind of put Stonehenge really in the early Bronze Age rather than 
the late Neolithic. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, in many ways, he had to do that really to make um, a coherent story for a, for a storyteller you can't it's very difficult to tell a story over several generations or you know uh, from one generation to the next and some people have tried to do that um and i don't think it ever really works that well uh but the you know so so maybe that's a liberty that that we can allow him the the fact that all of those things had to happen at the same time really <laughs> um or within within one person's lifetime, lifetime um, yeah for you yeah, to be able think- to follow it Yes, and he and he um, he uses he cherry picks really the best evidence that we've got. So you know the Stonehenge archer in the ditch at Stonehenge is, is, a, is a kind of early um, scene where he, that person gets murdered, and and the last scene really in the book is, is, is one of the main characters being buried as the bush sparrow man with all the gold. And, <laughs> I was and just waiting yeah. for that when it, when he described the um, the uh, with this is a spoiler alert by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <Everyone>, <laughs> the bush sparrow. We won't tell you who was buried as the bush sparrow chieftain. Um, but uh, when this bloke starts carrying around the mace with the lovely um, patterned head and the lightning bolt um, uh, bits of bone around the handle, then I thought, all right, yeah, it's going to be him then. <laughs> yeah, in, in, interestingly, though, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I don't, I, when I started reading the book, I found the chronology really annoying because I kept on thinking, well, they wouldn't be very Amount there, yeah. You know, kind of archaeologist setting up TV type, but actually, if you just kind of set that to one side, the stories that he tells are just absolutely compelling. Yeah. And one interesting thing about the Bush Barrow Man is he's a, he's disabled. He has a, a, a leg which is kind of he, he limps, and he he's got a sort of um, yeah uh, history of having that disability through his life, and that's really interesting because of course in the Bush Barrow we don't actually have the original skeleton. No, because it was, it was left, left where it was. Yeah. Yeah, they presumably left it in the barrow. And so that's just, I mean, that's just kind of quite a nice a layer of imagination that he's adding to the story as well. Yeah, and it's almost like the discussions bit, uh, over, you know, or, or the changing uses of Stonehenge, because clearly it was built over... Um, uh, more than a millennium so it can't have been built for one reason that's just impossible it must have had changing uses but that he manages to create that um at, between the the warring tribes and the different and the, the family feuds that are happening uh, and to create those arguments about what it was actually used what it was being built for yeah what's really interesting is he actually focuses a lot on the religion and the beliefs of the people at the time time and um, I kind of have to agree with him there that the religion is just the all-important encompassing thing about of that time and um, he really interestingly charts how that religion might be changing and how different tribes and different people might have slightly similar or slightly different religions and how they cause conflicts between them and or kind of alliances yeah and so it um, I think he does really well at imagining what those kind of religions might been and I think actually as archaeologists we can kind of learn a bit from that because it must have been something enormous in their lives that Mm. made them decide to build a monument absolutely you know getting a handle on uh, getting our heads around that is just so difficult that um yeah, this kind of book does help with, with imagining that a bit. It does a little bit. And he in his afterward at the end, he does compare Stonehenge to a cathedral um, because it's the same thing. It's it, what what has motivated what motivated medieval builders to build such incredible buildings to their God. Um, uh, and 
they're they're magnificent and they they would have taken years and decades just the same so it's uh it's quite it it is quite good that he has focused in on that religion although he doesn't he puts in all of the um uh, all of the engineering <laughs> and the technology stuff as well which i think has been uh, is probably based on pretty early um ideas of how that would have happened which don't seem to have changed very much whereas the idea about what Stonehenge was used for has changed the interpretation has changed quite a lot especially recently yeah I mean all, all of the things he talks about about the transport of the stones and the shaping of the stones and the raising of the stones is all you know I guess current thing you know we wouldn't disagree with how he's interpreted that um what's really interesting is from the religious point of view he um, the people who are building the monument, there's one man who decides what it's going to look like. There's another one who helps, who basically is in charge of the building. Yeah. They use slaves, which is quite an interesting um, idea. You know, that debate, what, were they slaves or were they people who were willingly giving their time and effort to the project? And the, the fact not everybody agrees about what the monument is for, even at the time that they're building it and even after it's finished. So, yeah, I think that idea that these things are not just clear cut, um, and they don't have one meaning over time. And that meaning could have been different at different times but also different depending on who you were and your perspective on the project yeah i think it's quite nice to, for him to to show that not only would we have different interpretations of it today but um at the time that it was being built it would have been exactly the same i just wanted to read a little extract about this focus on the religion which really it was at this point in the book that um af- that i was like Okay, I think he's got it. And uh, despite the the problems with the chronology, I'm, this is this is pretty good. So I'm I'm just going to read this bit from uh, uh, I think it's just from chapter two. It's quite early on. No one knew when the first people had come to the land beside the river, nor how they had discovered that Arin was the god of the valley. Yet Arin must have revealed himself to those people, for they named their new home for him, and they edged the hills around his valley with temples. They were simple temples, nothing but clearings in the forest where a ring of tree trunks would be left standing. And for years, no one knew for how many, the folk would follow the wooded paths to those timber rings where they begged the gods to keep them safe. In time, Arryn's people cleared away most of the woods, cutting cutting down oak and elm and ash and hazel, and planting barley or wheat in the small fields. They trapped fish in the river that was sacred to Arryn's wife, Mai, and herded cattle on the grasslands and pigs in the patches of woodlands that stood between the fields, and the young men of the tribe hunted boar and deer and aurochs and bear and wolf in the wild woods that had now been pressed back beyond the temples. The first temples decayed and new ones were made, and in time the new ones became old, yet still they were rings of timber, though now the rings were trimmed posts that were raised within a bank and ditch that made a wider circle around the timber rings. All was a circle, for life was a circle, and the sky was a circle, and the edge of the world was a circle, and the sun was a circle, and the moon grew to a circle, and that was why the temples at Cathalo and Druenna and Maiden and Ratharin, indeed in nearly all the settlements that were scattered across the land, were made as circles. Yeah, I think he really puts um, a kind of nine on that in a, in a kind of explaining the reason behind these similarities across sort of time and space that kind of i guess it's sort of a, a sort of human way of looking at the world as a circle but i think he, he does that he summarizes that really well i think so and what's what's lovely about it is that it's it's rather poetic as well um and i think that that kind i think when when it's 
because you could write that, and people have written that in archaeological um, monographs about how the circle was important to people in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age and blah blah. Um, but it's but the uh, just the simple touch of a uh, of an author like Bernard Cornwell um, will make that appear to be the truth. It's you can you can understand why people would believe this and almost be drawn into the religion yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, people like Mark Evans have tried to write fictional aspects in their archaeology books, and to a certain extent it works, but you can tell there's, there's a vast gap between what Mark writes as an archaeological academic, um, sort of as an almost amateur fictional writer, to a really established, well-known, and very, sort of, I guess, quite well-respected fictional writer like Bernard Cornwall. That's the difference, is that he, you know, he can he can move you almost to tears in, in some parts of the book, even though you, you know he's writing about people that are com- randomly completely fictional and you wouldn't necessarily have any kind of <laughs> emotional bond to. But you know, he, the way that that's that, that's the power of his writing. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So I think we would say that Ratharin is supposed to be Durrington Walls, um, and Catharlo is um, the people who who constructed Avebury. Now I don't I don't know that much about Avebury I have to say actually and you know just like there there's been uh, not that much done at Avebury either really over the years um not much excavation I should say um because these are iconic sites and uh, archaeologists don't have to dig them because they're not threatened <laughs> so what do, what did you think about the uh the way that Cornwell pitted the people of Avebury and the people of Stonehenge against each other the people of Catharlo and the people of Ratharin against each other I, I mean I think it's really interesting he he does the same with um the Stanton Druids Druenna and he does the same with the people who are from the Bluestones area of South Wales he gives that he basically does the classic archaeological thing of, of what we used to do in maybe the 1970s and early 80s, which is equate these monument complexes with societies and settlements nearby. So he has the settlement at Derrington Walls for Stonehenge, and he has a kind of unknown, we don't know of any settlements at Avebury, but he, put, he puts the settlement there at Avebury, um, at Cathello. Uh, and and, the, and the, the idea that, I mean, that's quite, and that's something that we could probably. Um, you know, discuss and debate as archaeologists now. But the interesting thing that he um, gets across is the sort of politics involved in the different groups of people and the way that their leaders and or, you know, their, their priests or their sorceresses kind of make decisions. And often they're quite personal, family-based, friendship-based, marriage-based decisions about whether they're going to be friends with or at um, war with a neighbouring tribe. And I think that's really interesting because he, um, he he does that really well because it's actually very complicated in the book yes. to follow because sometimes they're all with each other and sometimes they're not. And it very much depends on um, the activities of each different tribe and what they're trying to do. And actually, in the building of Stonehenge, they have to um, get a lot of cattle and a lot of food and a lot of slaves. And so they do a lot of raiding and a lot of killing and a lot of um, not being particularly nice in order to kind of construct the monument, mm. which is kind of probably anti the general way that archaeologists think about the past, I think, in a slightly rose-tinted way um, about how these lovely people are kind of gathering together in a nice, chummy way and, um, and building, building it together, together and yeah. Spirit, yeah. societies together. And, and, and actually, the kind of conflict and violence and warfare was, was um, is, is an interesting thing that he brings into it that 
perhaps we don't think about enough. We, we have evidence in the early Neolithic that there's warfare, but potentially there could have been in the late Neolithic as well. So um, I think it, I think he really brings that out. I, I guess I, I think myself that people would have um, not been slaves. So I guess I, I kind of have a, a slight problem with that idea in that I think people would have traveled quite long distances to help build the monument. But. Exactly. Uh, that's what, I mean... Uh, the the most the recent evidence evidence from Durrington Walls that that uh, of the you know the style of their houses was very much like Northern Scotland and um, there wasn't there some um, evidence of the cattle being uh, actually having been herded down from Scotland is that is that correct Yeah so there's isotope um, evidence from um, some of the cattle um, um, bones that they were um, not only from the Chalkland but also from other areas of the country and. I think two of them seem to come from somewhere that looked like it may be the Highlands of Scotland. Now, whether they were travelling with people and the people were coming too, or whether people were passing, you know, cowherd down the country, we don't know. But it does give an indication that um, that people were, were the influence of the building of Stonehenge did stretch that far, uh, and and potentially people could well have travelled to either help build or to worship, use, um, celebrate whatever at Stonehenge. Um, so I think I think perhaps his idea of these kind of static communities living in it with one for each major monument complex is probably a little bit simplistic, but yeah. that's quite a specific academic view on it. <laughs> exactly, um, but also the idea that um, uh, that there being some that some of them might have been coerced into going, we can we can track the movements. We can now track movements of people with this lovely stable isotope analysis, which looks at the chemical signature of the bones and can tell you where the person or the animal um, spent the early years of their life and the later years and contrast that, you know, and obviously where you find it, it might show that they've moved quite a distance. So that's a lovely thing, but we cannot say why. We can't say that um, the people came there of their own accord uh, and they might well have been coerced into doing so either through um, uh, kind of social ties of um, uh, of when you need you, you owe somebody a favor or it might have been a, a more violent type of coercion as um, explained in this book and we and it, that kind of it did challenge my views of you know the building of Stonehenge, which has been that that all these families get together and they all they all pull a stone and they put their stone up and then they uh, you know they, they've done their bit towards the monument rather than you know, whipping people along. Yeah, there's an there's an interesting bit in the book where the, the the character that's in charge of the project won't whip them. He refuses to use violence. He wants to he, you know yes. he wants to make them work hard. But he does it through rewarding them with food and shelter, and uh, and, and he's re- he refuses to use violence against them. But they are still slaves, and they have to be kind of set free once they finish the project. Yeah, I mean it's, it is an interesting um, thing. One of the things that I think he does really well is that um, he notices a couple of things about the stones, which give the indication that it was done not in haste, but there was somebody wanting it done quite quickly. Yes. As in the back of the stones are left not finished. Yeah. Um, that one of the stones is put up with a with a shallow um, stone hole um, and then falls over uh, probably fairly early on in the history of the monument yeah. and things like that. Which you know he gets across a sense of um, this monument having um, not just it was designed and put up, but there's a kind of so there's decision making going on behind that construction at, at quite a small detail that we can still pick up you know thousands of years later. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, it does suggest the presence of a big man. Of uh, it, I put that in quote marks in my voice um, at <laughs> at some point or at several points during the the building of this. Um, and yet, I had, uh, I, as you say, in archaeology, we've kind of moved away from that idea of uh, of there being a tribe with a single head uh, chief, as it were, um, that, that decides everything. Um, I was also, uh, so I mean, I was thinking that that possibly there'd be a group of elders that would be working together. But could you could you build this by committee? Could you build Stonehenge by committee? <laughs> Well, I think in the, in the book he does something really interesting, which is that the tribes have a number of leaders. They don't just have one big yeah. man in inverted commas. They have um, a, a, a kind of a leader who is, is sort of semi-elected, but is generally hereditary. And then they have a kind of priest um, who is, and then there's a high priest, and then there's several kind of lower priests who kind of generally work their way up to being high priests. And then there are various sorceresses and um kind of people who are who are termed goddesses who kind of perform a kind of religious role and 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 so there are actually a number of people who are leading um and that that's great because that's actually kind of demolishing that there's one guy in charge actually there are women and men and and in different i think um a capello in in the avery settlement that their leader is is female and and is traditionally female um rather than male so there's a kind of there's a nice mix there showing that actually there's people have lots of different social roles and they um there might not just be one person in charge but there could be several different people in charge and they actually don't always get on and they've got conflicting views about things and they change their minds about it. yes in the view in the t- uh, form of visions and dreams and things like that um there's also yeah. uh, but but i like i do like the idea that there's one guy who sits in his hut and he thinks about what the temple's going to look like and he plays with wooden blocks and he does it until for ages and ages until he decides that it's perfect. So I do I do like that idea that there was one person who thought, ah, we can do it like this and, and, and that's how it was done. So I think some of those ideas have to have come from one person rather than a kind of, yeah, as you say, designed by committee. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Oh, but you mentioned the presence of women, and um, I was uh, really, really disappointed at the beginning when, for quite a long part, about a part of the, of the first section, women are uh, hardly mentioned at all, and when they are, they are basically slaves. And you know, a man might take another wife, uh, but she sits behind a curtain, naked, ready for him to his will um, at any point, and they have absolutely no. Uh, agency of their own um, in Ratharin, in Durrington Walls settlement, which made made me really anti Ratharin, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you you do grudgingly get the sorceress at um, at Cathalo at Avebury, um, who's in charge. But the people, are, the men at Ratharin, are very scornful that they're led by a woman. Um, and things like that. And there's quite a lot of death that seems to happen disproportionately to women and children. Uh, and it's, um, I wondered, I was, I was thinking really, was it really like this? But of course there are, there are a number of, of more strong female characters as well. There are, but gen- generally there's a sense that the men go through a sort of coming of age process and become warriors and generally the priests are men and generally the people in charge are men. There are there are some characters who are um, fairly sort of powerful female leaders, but they tend to be 
on the religious side rather than on the kind of more secular leadership side. And and uh, and uh, you know again spoiler alert, but at, at the end you know you you know that the the one kind of main female character had sort of won in a way, um, and in her views had kind of prevailed. But um, that in more general terms, the women always or the food maker, they're always preparing food, these poor women. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it seems like all the slaves who are doing the building are men. Um, so there is quite a strong division of labour there, and the women are always preparing for the feast, and then the men are kind of sitting around and eating them. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it does seem quite um, a kind of old-fashioned way of thinking about society, and it would have been more groundbreaking, perhaps, for him to have mixed that up a little bit um, and had some women involved in the building and had some... You know, you know, just just kind of challenge some preconceptions. Well, exactly, I because I mean, as, alongside great barrows where chieftains were buried, so-called chieftains like Bush Barrow, there are uh, burials of uh, uh, of women with just as much splendour. Um, and there's always these discussions about whether that means that that's her own power that's reflected in the status symbols that she's buried with, or the power of her husband who is burying her. <laughs> Um, like the at, at Upton Lovell, for instance, the the Golden Barrow. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it would have been nice for him to take inspiration, perhaps from the the burials that are next to Bush Barrow, which appear to us to be female, although we don't know that for sure. Well, exactly, it, it yeah. And a fairly high status of their community, at least. So, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, it, it it would have been nice to see that mix it up a bit more, but maybe that's just because it's written by a man, and perhaps he. He was using his imagination quite in so many ways that he just kind of didn't really take that extra step in that yeah, area. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. I mean, it did seem as if in other places women were not treated quite so brutally as in Ratharin, and he made it a point of that that particular society that it was very, very um, uh, misogynist, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I was also thinking about um, the ways that he's, he talks about how the the uh, the communities interact with each other. Um, and we've touched on this already, that they, there seems to be a lot of raiding to get slaves um, uh, and a lot of um, uh, violence and um, negative feeling between these tribes instead of the 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 kind of competitive i guess what i would i always think that there's going to be competitive feasting that there would be marriage um alliances between the two that they actually the people around you would be pretty you'd be pretty much at peace with them surely or they you would be considered to be part of the same tribe of it especially by the late neolithic you'd think that things would settle down maybe a bit i don't know uh, but this is uh, it, this all kind of challenged my idea of that yeah, I, it's really interesting to think about because actually we don't really know. And so um, I guess his ideas are just bizarre. Although, as I said, it, the, the evidence for violence isn't there. But then we don't have, particularly in the late Neolithic, we don't have very many evidence. We don't have any human remains hardly at all apart from cremated ones to, to go by in terms of whether people were having injuries and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of just kind of population of the country, he's, he's sort of got a bit of an issue in that he's, basically pulling in people from all over the country, but they're, they're being captured as slaves and brought in, and they're going off on raiding expeditions to try and get enough grain and enough animals to feed everybody. And um, I just don't know whether the rest of the country would have kind of sustained that. It seemed quite kind of major. And I quite like the idea that it's slightly more um, collaborative. Um, there's quite there's a big idea at the moment amongst archaeologists, people like Alison Sheridan write about it a lot, about competitive consumption and 
competitive kind of construction of monuments, as in um, you build um, Avery and then someone else builds Stonehenge and then they go, well, we'll do one better and we'll build Silbury Hill. And, you know, that kind of idea that you're kind of creating monuments as a kind of display of um, how well-managed and sort of um, ambitious and organised. Yes, but also how religious you are, how you love the gods more than anyone else. And how religious you are, yeah. Yes, and I think that that idea of competition between societies and communities is is really interesting because I'm not I'm not particularly convinced by it because I don't think that I, I think that potentially people are moving around and helping build monuments in different places at different times and that that kind of basic idea, the idea of competition if you're if you're not if you're just kind of competing with other people they've actually got to see that monument so those people have to travel to Avery and look at Silbury Hill and be in, in awe yeah. of it and then go home and decide to do something themselves even better. And I don't, I just don't think that that encompasses the, the level of complexity to do with the religious beliefs that would have led to the construction of the monument. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I quite liked the, their idea of Silbury Hill, of why, why that was built, because, um, you know, so many people have tried to dig into it, dig into the top, dig into the bottom, <laughs> um, and found nothing at all in it. Uh, and in the book, there's um, the two tribes, Cathalo and uh, Ratharin, have competing gods as well in many ways. The, the Cathalo um, seem to worship the moon, uh, while Ratharin worship the sun. Um, and obviously the construction of Stonehenge is a massive monument to the sun, the, the death of the sun at midwinter and the, um, uh, and the rebirth of the sun at, at midsummer. Oh, well, I suppose it's not quite rebirth, but you know what I mean. And, um, <laughs> uh, and with Silbury Hill, I quite liked the idea that it would have been a bright white circle to be seen from the sky by the moon goddess herself to see her own reflection on earth so that she knew that she was being worshipped. I think, uh, do you know what? I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah, I think that's quite a good idea, isn't it? I mean, I really like that. That's quite nice. Um, and I, I like the idea of these, they're quite similar religions, but they are slightly different. And the idea that they might be competing. It, it has quite a lot of... Yeah, it does have uh, quite a lot of, of resonance with things not too far in our past with the uh, competing Christianity, forms of Christianity and the, the violence that that engendered. Yeah, and how, how, relig how religion can cause enormous conflict and debate. And, and just over minor differences, you know. <laughs> yeah, so the interesting idea is that religion and um, sort of religious beliefs and therefore monument building could actually drive changes in the economy and changes in the way that society is organized because you've got to um, supply the food and the equipment and the shelter for all the people who are involved in the building projects and, and getting all the materials etc and and that that's quite an interesting idea that's coming out of places um where agriculture first starts in in turkey and places like that where the amazing sites like Gebekli yeah. Tepe where it seems almost like the, the building of, of large stone monuments might be driving the, the, the adoption of agriculture and that, that sort of turns on its head the traditional way that we think about um, monuments as being something that people do once they've adopted agriculture and once they've got enough yeah. time and they've settled down and they've got all the surplus right. they need to, to, Let's to kind of build, build a monument <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. We paid off the mortgage. Now we can build a monument. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's um, yes. I think uh, what's lovely about reading books like fictional books, which sometimes I do shy away from, I have to say, but it does um challenge your thinking about about that that time period, um, whether or not you're uh, you're okay with it. 
with the evidence of it. And it's quite, um, I think that this, this started out like I was going to be really annoyed with the, with, um, the changes that he'd made. Sorry, I was a bit sceptical to go back to it, and I thought, oh, this is going to be... Now I know this so well better than yeah. the first time I read it. Yeah, and I thought I'd be annoyed by it, but actually what he does as a fictional author is he gives himself permission, which we never do really as archaeologists, to go completely wild with yes. his imagination and to think about the personalities of people and the debates and the conflict and how it, how yeah. it works. And actually what he's done is perhaps get closer to that than we might do just by writing about the archaeology. And many more people will have read this than will have read any archaeological book about Stonehenge. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, because actually I think it does get across quite well lots of lots of the issues and lots of the interesting things about that period. And I mean, I, I guess the chronology is guess the one thing that might make me worry a little bit about that, but even if it just inspires somebody to go and pick up a, a non-fictional book about Stonehenge, then that would probably be quite a good thing. But it, it, my research... Um, so my PhD is about Neolithic ceremony and monument complexes and how, you know, was it competition, was it power? And all of those issues are brought out really strongly in this book. Uh, and um, um, it, this, this one, and as well as the book I was talking about before, The People of the Black Mountains, I've read both of them quite recently. And I'm going to be using little excerpts from, I think, in my PhD, just because they sum up some of the issues so well that, that we don't really do otherwise in, in our sort of non-fiction writing. All these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. So do you think that um, that all students of Stonehenge should read this book? Uh, yes, I do, actually. and Because I, I just think it gives you that extra level and it just shows you the, how complicated it was or how complicated it might have been. And I think as archaeologists, we tend to like to make sweeping statements about how it was and how it, how things happened and we really haven't this this book sort of shows you how much we don't know in a way about that yeah thing. absolutely I, and i think it, it would be a real test to be able to read this and to to think about all of the um the points where it it uh, um deviates from the accepted story of stonehenge if there is such a thing because i know when when we when we first uh, got in contact with each other i was asking you to look over something that i'd written for teachers about stonehenge um about the differing um uh, interpretations of it over the over the millennia really because of course it's always been there it's it, it, in even the earliest um historians in the medieval period were talking about how stonehenge had been brought uh, across the sea by merlin which is you know not too far from the truth actually and you were pointing out that that today there are still quite a lot of competing theories about 
uh, why it was built. And I think in in Bernard Cornwell's book, he actually kind of really touches on every single one of them, Um, that it was a place of the dead, uh, which is the thought of Mike Parker Pearson. Um, that it was a place of pilgrimage um, and um, the magic can happen there because of the stones that come from Wales. Um, and, um, and of course... He had the kind of healing idea in there a bit. Yes, he did. Uh, just as an afterthought right at the end, I think, it was that people came to, to be healed. And... Um, uh, and, of course, this, we can't get away from the sun. Now... I, w- I wondered, I, I was also quite quite keen on this idea of the rise in the worship of the sun, what with the early Bronze Age, because what does bronze look like? And what and gold, of course, is, it comes at the same time. And amber seems to increase in importance in the early Bronze Age. So I quite like the idea that there was this, this rise in worship of the sun god that can be seen at Stonehenge and in the, the, fo- the monuments that follow on. Or what do you think? Yeah, no, I do as well. I, I quite like the idea that there are quite a lot of competing religions that are actually quite different to each other. And in certain places, they are... I mean, because that fits with the evidence that we have. We know that the sun is important for sites like Newgrange, for example. We know it's important for Stonehenge. We know it's important in the Bronze Age in Europe, where they have things like the Nebra Sky Disc and the Trondheim Chariot and things that seem to point towards a quite a major sort of focus on gold and some the sun being important at that period. But they're actually quite different periods and different people doing things. And so, um, and there are other areas where there don't seem to be any, like Avebury, there doesn't seem to be any astronomical alignment at all. So um, the idea that there are different religions and that one might become slightly more important in some areas, yeah, I think that matches the evidence quite well. And I I think in the book, he he kind of touches on all of those those theories. And they are, you know, this is the end when he says it's about the cathedral is quite, you know, eye-opening, I guess, for um, most archaeologists would have known that analogy anyway, but for, for somebody who doesn't know the archaeology quite so well, it, that would be quite revealing, I think, to them about what it was about. One of the interesting things that Bernard does is he sticks to, obviously, the accepted 1995 chronology of Stonehenge, where the Sarsen stones get put up at a different time to the blue stones. And our revised, in that pack that you were doing for the, for the schools, I think um, one of the things we were looking at was the phasing of the monument, and it didn't, the latest thinking on the phasing is that actually perhaps the bluestones and the sarsons were put up at the same time, which makes the construction project even more impressive because they're doing both of those things at the same time. Now, there's a bit of debate about when the bluestones arrived, whether they were there already and got moved in within the monument or whether they um, um, came at the same time, but whatever, it sort of, in a way, it makes that event, that building event, possibly within a lifetime of one person, possibly 50 years to 100 years, um, that, that, that sort of even I guess, kind of builds up on what he, what he does in, in, his, in the chronology of, of the book. It makes it even more of a big project. Yes, because he kind of leaves the blue stones out, doesn't he, um, in the end? Um, and you're wondering, oh, what, so who's going to put those up then? <laughs> Yeah, and actually that, that's actually a reflection of, of what was annoying about that archaeological um, sequence for many years. It was that kind of bluestones are there, then yeah. they get taken off site, strangely, where they yeah. go, and then they come back. And um, he, actually the book kind of does show how, how that's a slightly silly idea, and obviously they probably wouldn't have done that. Um, and so our, our latest chronology kind of fixes that problem. Yeah, that's that's really good. Let's, I mean, if we talk about the 
the um, bluestones because um, quite a, a, a large sequence of the book is is quite co. I mean, obviously, I have problems sometimes with authors when it's quite coincidental that one character gets to do all these different things. Um, and he, there's one, the main character really, I suppose, Saban, um, starts off in Ratharin and ha- somehow manages to get over to um, the Priscelli Mountains um, in uh, South Wales and um, and is there to uh, to work on getting those blue stones over to uh, to Stonehenge. Um, and the what I quite liked about that sequence is, again is that the bluestones were exacted from the people of Wales. They weren't they weren't given gladly and wholeheartedly, but it was it was always a deal. And I'd never I'd never really thought of that before. I don't think that it, again it's kind of why do people do things? Are they forced to, or or do they do it willingly for the for the love of it. I mean, what an amazing thing to have done. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole thing kind of made me think, oh, yeah, well, that, that is a really interesting idea that um, you're, you're kind of having to exchange these stones that are actually quite important to you in order to get something else back, which is even more important to them as a community. And it sort of, um, it does make you think why, you know, if they, if they, there's this idea that the blue stones at Stonehenge were possibly part of a, uh, a stone circle or, or a monument that stood in Wales before it was brought over um, to Salisbury Plain. And he and Bernard picks up that idea and has a, a monument in Wales that they dismantle and bring over. And that's kind of, you know, which we, we don't know where, if, if it or if it ever existed, but the, pe- the people have to kind of do this. And they, they do it willingly because they want to get something, some treasures of their own back from the people of Salisbury Plain. But it's not, it, yeah, it's not something that they have offered. It's something that's kind of, yeah, as you say, exacted from them. And I think that's really interesting, particularly in the way that they then have to make the boats and ship them over. And it's a huge effort for that particular community to go to. Um, but they, it was obviously worth it for them to get back their treasures that they wanted. So yeah, that, that was really interesting. And also it wasn't, it wasn't the people of Salisbury Plain going to Wales and all bringing them back. It was the people of Wales actually transporting their stones to Salisbury Plain. Yeah, very much a one-sided agreement that to do with the personalities yeah, that yeah. he created in the book. Um, but it, you could, you know, you kind of get that that feeling that, that it, as I say, we just don't know why or how the we don't how things are are moved across. And he's got that imagination to think about. Well, how do you kind of convince somebody to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's the persuasion element of it. And I think what he does really well is is that detail, the complex detail of personalities and deals and tribes and how they're interacting with each other, which we know we will never get to um, as archaeologists because we, however much we we know about where people are moving, it's those sort of um, decisions based on personality and individual decisions that are really really difficult for us to get to. Um, and and he does it, yeah he does that really well and makes us think about actually. Did they really want their stones to go? Were they quite happy to see them leave? Yeah, Probably yeah. not. And, you know, when, when they got there and they weren't happy with them and that kind of thing, that was, uh, and so they had to build something bigger. It was it was quite interesting to, you know, to have an insight into the possible thought processes. Yeah, and the possible thought process of, of um, as we know, most monuments are not just built in one go, that there is an element of a monument built and then people come back a bit later and change it and enlarge it and make something different. And it, that that process of, of decision making about why it wasn't satisfactory as it was, or why they had to go back to an abandoned temple and remake it, all of those are you know things that we know definitely happened. So um, trying to think about why those things happened. Yeah, is, it is, is, and it's obviously just for us as a starting point. But um, so it's uh, of of 
kind of trying to reinvigorate the, uh, those those ideas, although, of course, there's quite a lot of reinvigoration happened recently. There were two other, other things that I wanted to touch on, and that was the nature of the sacrifices and the use of human bones, which is a massive, massive thing in the earlier Neolithic. Um, and presumably some of those long barrows where the bodies were, were put in, possibly already defleshed, um, the, 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 or possibly put in there and left, and then people go back and get their bones and take them away again. It was maybe it wasn't uh, such a big part of the book because, or uh, those bones, whenever they were used, were not were not treated with very much reverence, as far as I could work out in the book. Um, and maybe that's reflecting the fact that that's a slightly earlier practice that people have kind of got a bit tired of. I'm not sure because at one point, the the. At one point, the warriors take out the bones of West Kennet and uh, piss on them. <laughs> um, and um, it seems um, that, uh, it, well, yeah, maybe, as I say, it's just reflecting the fact that by by the time this was built, that was a bit old hat. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that, um, he, yeah, it has the long barrow, so it has the early Neolithic, and, and they're sort of viewed as ancestors in the book. And um, the tribe who are yeah, sort of at the time at war with the Avery tribe, um, basically sort of um, treating them, their ancestors incredibly badly um, as a sort of um, uh, snob to them. Um, but late, later in the book, when people die um, in the sort of late Neolithic period, as it were, as in the Stonehenge period, they are practicing excarnation where they put the bodies um, out at what he calls the death. Death, death, yeah. death temple, I can't remember, um, which is Coneybury Henge, and, and that has that excarnation where the ravens come and eat the flesh, and then they put the bones, then they bury, only bury yeah. the bones after that. that he's picked up on quite, a, uh, you know, an idea that is quite familiar to archaeologists, but um, excarnation isn't something that most people kind of think about or know about. And then he has other things where bones, are, particularly children's bones, are worn as amulets and or tied into beards or made into bits of clothing, which... Again, we kind of know that sort of thing probably from ethnographic records, but also from the you know the fact that we don't know what happened. You know, we don't really get that many burials. What are they doing with these bones? Not everybody goes into a barrow yeah. or a long barrow. What what what's happening to all these remains? And I think that he does that. Um, he, he kind of just explores all those different ways of treating the dead. Um, so it very much depends on who you are and how you die as to what happens to your body. And um, it's not necessarily. Um, you know, everybody at one period all gets buried in a certain way. It, it very much depends on whether they're a, a stranger or whether they're a child or uh, the kind of role that they've played in their life. Um, sort of, yeah. So, yeah, there's a bit at the end about blood and sacrifice and um, there's quite a lot of kind yeah. of violent death that happens, which is quite interesting is. as well. Um, but I think he, I mean, he, he's probably not sticking particularly well to the evidence um, but that's, I guess that's because we, we know a lot more about, say, the cremations at Stonehenge, for example, now, about the dates of the, when they were actually um, buried, um, which he wouldn't have known at the time in 1999. Um, and he's, he's sort of mixing up barrows and excarnation and long barrow. In the whole sort of death processes that we would probably separate out into different kind of periods, he sort of comes together. Yeah, very, very distinct periods, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't feel like it was a massive problem because actually he was doing he was he was talking about sort of archaeologically attested ways yeah. of treating the dead. Um, I mean, there's there was plenty of evidence in there that um, he explained later that I had not come across myself. I mean, I'm not uh, as au fait with everything as you are, obviously. Um, like the the um, burial of a child that whose head had been split halfway down the middle. Uh, 
Oh, uh, yeah. There is a bar- it's a burial of a child in the middle of Woodhenge. Unfortunately, the skeleton was bombed oh. in the Natural History Museum, so we don't have it any. Unlikely to have been um, sacrificed because basically um, child burials, they, they won't have had the, the skull um, sort of joined together anyway at that day. So a lot of, um, a lot of antiquarian and, and older excavations tended to interpret these kind of Cleveland skulls as being evidence of sacrifice, but actually it tends to be a problem that actually happened young children's skulls they they'd, yeah they're just not um suited together at that stage so oh well thank you because i didn't want that little girl to die i really didn't that was horrible yeah and no so and also that that burial may well be kind of early bronze age or later in date and added to to an old, yes. older monument because we know that happened quite a lot say in the beaker period and in the early bronze age period um so yeah that that was quite yeah a- so what but what does he care he doesn't mind about that i mean if he'd known about the amesbury archer and the boscombe bowman um, in 1999, he, they would have been in there, wouldn't they? They would have been part of that story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. No, he'd have woven them in, I'm sure. He he definitely picks up on those key characters um, really well. Yeah, he, he definitely included the. He definitely would. I mean, especially because he had a little problem with his with his leg. <laughs> I mean, he reminded me very much. And I was thinking, really, is it going to be? Oh no, no, he wasn't known by then. <laughs> but in 1999, nobody found him. <laughs> um, and of course, that that would have been lovely because he'd have come all the way from the Alps and things like that. That would have been great, actually. <laughs> that would have been an extra dimension would yeah, because it's very much a British story. He, he goes as far as, as far as far north as Avery and as far west as Wales, but yeah, there's not much um travelling beyond that apart from kind of generic references. Well that's to it as well because he talks to... about the um we did, uh, the the gold lozenges buried with a bush barrow chieftain um came from Wales according to according to Cornwell. Um and there were many, many more of them originally. Um and of course, gold was being mined in Wales at that time. Is that right, or is, would it have come all the way from from Ireland? Um, yeah, it's a debated topic at the moment where that gold comes from. Um, lots of people for many years Irish gold, um, but uh, so that would make sense if you're in South Wales, you're a bit closer to where the gold was playing. But actually, some more recent work has suggested that it might yeah. be Cornish, um, um, Cornish origin gold um, that's going into these early Bronze Age objects, which would make more sense. Because the 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 mace head also comes from Cornwall, doesn't it? In the bush barrow, I think that. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. But, okay. Yeah, that one. That's quite interesting, isn't it? I don't think the bush barrow um, gold no, has been no. tested for that. Um, that clinical test that you can use oh. by now. Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Um, But, I mean, also the bush barrow, because I wrote about the bush barrow for the British Museum's Teaching History of the 100 Objects. Um, So, uh, and of course, it's not in the British Museum, it's in the Wiltshire Museum in Devizes. But the dagger with all of the gold rivets in the handle and the other things buried with him are are Britannic. They come from Brittany. So um, there was, as you say, it was very much a a British story. And and I suppose there's so much complexity in it already. He doesn't want to introduce chieftains from Brittany as well. (laughs) And Cornwall. Yeah, yeah, it could get a bit over. If you like Game of Thrones. Yeah, Um, Yeah, in a way, I was quite glad that he didn't do that because for me, the late Neolithic story is a British story, a British and Irish story. And it's really only later that you get those kind of continental and wider collection connections really in the in the Bronze Age. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the early Bronze Age, isn't it? Really, when you uh, to me, it's all about those long distance connections. And this is the last point I wanted to make. Actually, it was about 
Harag. Do you remember Harag? Yeah. Yeah, the trader, the itinerant trader who goes all around the country, goes right up north, goes everywhere. And uh, he tra- he takes all of his things and he, he is the one who brings objects between tribes. And that is the uh, obviously one way that um, archaeologists have, have been arguing against for decades uh, that uh, you know there's this trader's action at a distance which is such an old phrase now really but it's it's much more of um uh, of, the, of the accepted way that things moved around is between um tribes from one tribe to the next probably as gifts um and eventually they would have moved down the line and got from cornwall or from from wales or uh, from Brittany to to wessex uh, so uh, unfortunately, it's sad because I quite liked Harag, but I just don't think he would have existed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, we know that things like Flint from Norfolk is being brought in quite large quantities to other yeah. parts of the country, um, and we know that so that so there's there's sort of trading on exchange um, of quite sort of um, large quantities of a particular type of, of good, as it were. And um, and yeah, I mean, all kinds of you know things that you learn about at undergraduate archaeology, like gift exchange and um, um, prestige goods and things like this, could could well have been at play. But at the same time, there are certain objects. You think of the the green alpine axes, which were very very unusual, but obviously travelled a very long distance. And you kind of sometimes wonder whether that was somebody who thought, I can take that to somebody else, and I can travel, and I know how to get there, and I know that they'll pay. You know that it's going to be more important to them. Some, you know, somebody with that kind of almost trading mindset wouldn't have been impossible. Um, although, you know, so are we going back to that now? Well, I don't know. That's just my own personal thoughts. I don't really, um, I don't really know. I think we know that much about the sort of social interactions between people enough to know exactly how that's happening. It, it probably isn't a kind of classic trader out to make his mint, but in a way, Harag isn't either. He's he's the kind of he becomes a priest later on in the book. And he he does have a sort of he has a his own agenda in some ways a history where he where he's got family members that are killed and, and various things but he's not a straightforward I'm just out to make my money girl type guy you know so in some ways people traveling with these special objects you know that you can imagine someone being entrusted with a particular gift and sent a long way away you know to another tribe as a specific task. Um, rather than a kind of, yeah, a trader with lots of goods to sell. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I think it performs a function in the story more than anything is, is um, and I don't know whether he's, because quite a lot of the rest of the of the exchange comes in for in the other forms that you think were, you know, they're stolen or they're, um, or they're given as gifts or whatever. Um, and really, Harag, he, he stops being a trader eventually once he doesn't need to be a trader because the main character is doing, is back where he's supposed to be. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a slightly lazy kind of, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Lazy, lazy, lazy plot twist. Yeah, plot that's twist. what I think. Is is yeah. Harag is unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I can see that point. I I think it, he does something quite interesting with the gold lozenges because they um, they seem to be stolen, and the idea that not all gifts were always passed in exchange or as gifts so that actually somebody could steal yeah, something or somebody else. That group would yeah. then want those things back, and that can cause conflict. And other major things to happen. That that that's 
you think how powerful those tiny little objects yeah. could have been. And just one person's action can have changed things. They, and brought yeah. uh, brought those tribes much closer together because now that um, I suppose the building of Stonehenge makes Ratharin that tribe the the kind of centre of the of Britain certainly or, or particularly England um, where people come from all over to see this new temple or to be healed at this new temple yeah. and it's yeah it that yeah and it's almost end, that, it? rather than the um and and that's kind of the culmination of just that one small act of of theft <laughs> at the beginning of the book it's quite interesting yeah yeah and that's all when archaeologists talk about things like agency and individual and individual action it's sometimes hard to comprehend but actually that's what we're trying to get to is the fact that one person can make a decision about something and it can change the entire history of of a monument or of, of a particular relationship. Yes, but sometimes the decisions that they make are not, um, or they, they do something that they didn't decide to do. <laughs> you know, if you see what I mean. So Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things that people think they know what they're doing, but they don't necessarily know yes. the consequences yes. of what they do uh, in the longer term. And that's something that archaeologists and, and social kind of scientists are quite interested in um, in general. I mean, I guess, I guess we ought to point out that we've been talk, talking fairly easily about things like tribes and chiefdoms and um you know society and these sort of words that we would probably in an academic um context be trying to question whether we should use those terms anymore but in the in the context of discussing this particular book um because he does use those terms and because he does talk about these different communities we, we've kind of been a bit lax probably about sort of talking about that sort of thing but but what what are the alternatives what how what are the um i think some of the ways that are that in an academic sense, we would talk about these people are much more, I mean, obviously, we're trying to be objective um, uh, and uh, scientific about it. Uh, but it, it makes it a little bit um, impersonal, well, very impersonal, actually. And it means that I don't think you can get to the uh, to that agency and you can't get to the to um, the reasons behind people doing things unless you have some kind of uh imaginative uh sense of what what life might have been like yeah no and i think that's really important and i think that's why archaeology is better than in the 1970s and 1980s when we just went and it's a chiefdom and there's probably a man in charge and that's it sort of thing which is which is not what bernard cornwall doing he's doing something a bit more clever than that he's probably closer to what we should be thinking about as archaeologists now but it, it, in a way those old terms like tribe and chiefdom just they don't encompass the variability and complexity of those structures and settlements and people moving around and people having different ideas and religion that we, we should be engaging with as, as archaeologists but we don't really have the language to ex to to um, explain those um, or you know, because they're very good pithy words, aren't they? They're, and every, when, you, when you use the word chieftain or tribe, you know everybody knows what you're talking about. But if you're talking about a community, yeah. now, what does that actually mean? Yeah, and it's difficult to talk about. And that, that's why actually, if, some, if you said to somebody, actually, why why is it more complicated? I'd say just go and read Bernard Cornwall's book <laughs> because actually he does show really well how complicated relationships between people might be and how they're always changing and how a, a community doesn't necessarily mean a community who are living in one place it can have connections to other communities and there isn't such a thing as a kind of founded society that lives by itself and doesn't talk to anybody it's all meshed yeah. in and quite complicated and 
archaeologists, theorists, theoretical archaeologists do talk about that sort of stuff, but they do it in such yeah. a way that it's quite penetrable. Yes. To and it's impenetrable to me. And in a way, it's much, yeah, and in, in a way, it's much easier to read Bernard Cornwall's book and just go, wow, wasn't it complicated? And isn't it interesting? Um, and that gives you a better sense of it than saying, you know, it yeah, wasn't cheap. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I think that um, then we're, we're kind of agreed that the book has um, provided the kind of imagination that we need when talking about Stonehenge and why in the world people would create a monument like this. Um, and so, uh, even though it has flaws, uh, some of it chronological, that we can understand why he made those decisions and some of the reasons why the, we don't... Um, uh, some of the, the flaws in the book just come from the fact that it was written in 1999 um, before some of the most recent evidence has, uh, has been unearthed and, and more interpretations. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because you're always going to have different interpretations and there'll be new ones in another 10 years when there's been a bit more work. And, um, you know, an, an author will have to just sit down and write at whatever time that they decide to write and, and deal with the evidence that they've got. Yeah, and I think I think all we can do is I guess I, I guess I'd like to encourage people to do that because the one thing that Bernard did do was an amazing amount of research and he knew the stuff really well, read all the right books and he did it you know in a good way. And if you've got fictional writers doing that at the same pace, you know, perhaps a novel every ten years or twenty years at the same time as our ideas are changing in archaeology, I'm sure that writers would be inspired by the new thinking and be able to then push that on. It's kind of like one of those iterative processes where, you know, fiction can be inspired by archaeology, but then archaeology, an archaeologist can be... Which is what I'm trying to do here, absolutely, well. yeah. And um, what I'd quite like to see, so, is a children's book about Stonehenge. Do you, do you know of any that exist? Because all I know of are kind of... Um, children's factual books about Stonehenge, which are written in a very accessible way and they've got fun and games in them. But there isn't, a, as far as I know, there isn't a fictional story for children, preferably illustrated. Um, no, the only yeah, the only one I know of um, is a sort of a picture book version that, that, that's a kind of it, it's a non-fictional version of the story. Um, and there's obviously Julian Richards' pop up Stonehenge, but again, as you say, that, that's not good. Yeah, it would be great to see. And in fact, I love the ones that they, they do a lot of them in I, France. The yeah, kind of, the I was just about to say that. Yeah. And things like that. Yeah, and, and that would be, you know, actually, do you know what? A, a children's adaptation of, the, of Bernard Cornwall's novel would be quite quite a kind of, you know, a, a, a good place to start, maybe. It would. I think it might be aimed at uh, the young adult audience, <laughs> given. Yeah, but I think. I think, you know, I've been doing work on medieval sites a bit more recently, but, you know, the kind of Game of Thrones generation, people love all that kind of, you know, warring and exciting kind yeah. of elites, kind of, you know, interesting ideas about religion. It's all kind of, I think it's fairly popular, that kind of thing. I think moment, it is, anyway. actually. So, um, yeah, well, there's a challenge for somebody out there to write a, a children's adaptation of Bernard Cornwell's Stonehenge or a, your own version based on um, the more recent um, excavations as well with all those that evidence in there and try and make it as compelling as this one because it's um, uh, it's really, um, it is a fascinating book Whether uh, and hopefully if you read it, um, whether or not you're an archaeologist, you can um, get over the the bad chronology <laughs> that's in there, because uh, that's um, uh, really the 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 main problem um, I think that I've got. 
Well, thank you very much, Sue. And I have to say before you go that the the um, new interpretation and the museum at Stonehenge is fantastic. Um, I went uh, last year, last August, uh, with my daughter, and we stood inside the the, sto- the virtual stones, watching the seasons go by and watching the midsummer sunset. It was absolutely amazing. Oh, thank you! I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, and I really loved the um, uh, the interpretation, um, particularly of, of the, how the Stonehenge has been interpreted, reinterpreted over the years, and how it's been used in popular culture and stuff like that, that which was on at the time. I think that's probably changed now. Is that right? Um, yeah. So at the moment, we've got a temporary exhibition which is Julian Richards' right. "Wish You Were Here," which is the kind of Stonehenge souvenirs and, <laughs> and taps, which is all oh. really fun. And that will be that will be there for the rest of this year. I'll have to so, go back. Um, <laughs> um, and I yeah. and I love going inside the houses. So um, if anyone has read Bernard Conwell's Stonehenge and they want to visit the houses of Ratharain, there are what I think about three or four. Uh, yeah, we've got four, four, and a small one. Yeah. Yeah, replica stone houses based on the ones that were excavated at Durrington Walls, which is known as Ratharain in this book. Um, and they're set out in a very similar way to um, some of the houses up in uh, the Orkneys, um, where you're just about to go, aren't you, Sue? I am, yep. Yeah. I'm going uh, the day after tomorrow. I'm flying up to Orkney to excavate <sighs> at the Nefebodgar, which is another equally fascinating late Neolithic uh, ceremony. Oh, that's going to be absolutely wonderful. I hope, I hope the weather is good for you. <laughs> yeah, <I hope> so. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, and it's been it's been really fascinating. We could go on for another hour, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, and thank, thank you for making me re-read re- re- the yeah, yeah, well. book because it's been really really interesting. Yeah, and uh, good luck with your uh, PhD as well. And um, that sounds like it's thank it's going to be something that I'd like I'd like to um, look out for in the future and kind of remind <laughs> myself. It'll yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Well, you've got to just keep at it. It's persistence, isn't it, <laughs> with a PhD? Um, thank you ever so much and um, thank you for listening if you're still with us at the end of this podcast Um, tune in to the next podcast where I hope to be talking to um, Spencer Carter um, about uh, Margaret Elphinstone's The Gathering Night which is set in Mesolithic Scotland and has quite an amazing sequence at the beginning uh, of the Mesolithic tsunami that we'll be talking about Um, so I hope you've uh, been inspired by Bernard Cornwell's Stonehenge and will pick it up let me know of any other fictional books based on the prehistoric past that you'd like me to, uh, to read and talk about thank you This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.